So we're continuing through Nehemiah, and tonight we're going to attempt to uh, bite off uh, a pretty good chunk. We're going to attempt to uh, work our way through chapters 3 and 4. They really do tie together. I read this in the Daily Citizen uh, last week. The story is told of the veteran sea captain navigating a horrendous storm in the icy Atlantic. Are we going to make it, asked a young passenger. Well, replied the skipper, let me put it to you this way. The waves are high, the boat is old, we have a boiler that could explode at any moment, we could go down, we could go up, but for now, we go on. I like that. It's kind of where we are right now. Uh, a tremendous amount of uncertainty, a tremendous amount of insanity, a tremendous amount of lawlessness, uh, a tremendous amount of chaos, a tremendous amount of confusion, and that's just among the leadership. And then you've got everybody else. In the book of Nehemiah, they weren't in a storm on the Atlantic, but they were in the... Um, they were in Israel, in the city of Jerusalem, and they were attempting to do a task that had been uh, lying in rubble for 70 years, and that task was to rebuild the walls. And we've been through the history of this over the last couple of weeks, so I'm not going to go back over that. But the task is before them, and God's put this on the heart of Nehemiah, and he's led... Um, a group back to Jerusalem from Persia where he was the cupbearer to the king and the prime minister. And they're going to try to rebuild those walls. And for 90 years, that's been frustrated. It, uh, it looks to be an impossible task. They're actually going to do it, and they're going to do it in 52 days. It, it's going to be a remarkable achievement. But it took a calling of God to move Nehemiah. He got the favor of the king. And as we saw in chapter 2, he tells the people the background and how the Lord worked in his heart and how the king gave him favor and gave him the materials that were needed to uh, rebuild the gates, to get the lumber to rebuild the gates. Um, they are going to, interestingly enough, they're, Jerusalem, the walls, are, are just rubble. And in chapter 2, he rides around old Jerusalem on a horse. He can't even get around because the rubble is so high and things are so broken. Interestingly enough, they don't send for new material. They rebuild the walls out of the rubble that's there. And, and that, that, that's... You know, that's just like the Lord. We've all experienced broken walls in our lives. We've all experienced uh, brokenness. We've all experienced uh, being away from the Lord and having our own set of objectives and our goals, and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, and we are hell-bent on doing it our way. And in his goodness, the Lord lets us crash maybe hit a wall going 150 miles an hour, and 
all the dreams and all the hopes and all the aspirations are, uh, are busted up and the walls of our lives are broken and we have nowhere to turn except to him. Uh, there are walls in our lives, there are walls in our hearts. Everywhere we look, there are broken walls. It can be the broken walls of a, of a marriage, of a family, of a career, of, uh, that comes from addiction. We're, we're broken people, we're sinners. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Th this is a book that talks about building. It talks about rebuilding. It talks about reconstruction, which is what God does in our lives. He, he rebuilds us so that we can rebuild others. He takes, uh, he takes broken men and he uses us with the gifts that he has given to us in order that we might be effective for him. That's the message. That's the heart message of Nehemiah. Uh, tonight we're going to look at two chapters, as I mentioned. We're going to look at chapter 3 and we're going to look at chapter 4. So my outline is very simple. It's just a two-part outline. Number one, I'm just going to call it rebuilding the walls. That took me hours to come up with that. <laughs> rebuilding the walls, that's chapter 3 because that's what they're doing in chapter 3, as we'll see in a minute. Secondly, resisting the enemy's attacks and voices because here's what happens and that's chapter four as you follow the Lord and as he re rebuilds you and rebuilds the walls of your life and then gives you a particular task or a particular calling uh, whether it's uh, you're, you're a young guy you get married you have kids now you're you're building a family you're in the midst of that you don't get much sleep you're not making much money you're trying to juggle all this stuff. Or you're in midlife. What does midlife mean? It means you're at roughly 40. It means you're half dead. <laughs> Just to put a positive spin on it. Psalm 90 is for the days of our lives, they contain 70 or due to strength, 80 years. Soon it is gone, we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. Um, life goes by quickly. And each um, stage of life, each season of life, has its own unique challenges. Uh, depending on where you are, you're facing challenges perhaps you haven't quite faced before, quite like this. That's pretty normal in the different seasons of life. But you can count on this, if you're following Lord Jesus Christ and you're serious about him and you're serious about building the kingdom in your sphere of influence, whether it be with grandkids, whether it be with your family, whether it be at work, whatever it is, whatever he calls you to do, you can count on this. As you rebuild those particular walls, you're going to encounter resistance, you're going to encounter attacks you're going to encounter uh, voices of criticism and ridicule. We're seeing that more and more in our country if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at chapter 3, Rebuilding the Walls. Uh, and I will tell you this, I'm not going to read the entire chapter because we'll read a few verses and then you'll begin to get the rhythm of this particular chapter. That you have a 
introduction to 42 work crews that are rebuilding the wall. Each of those crews is led by a particular individual. And that's what this chapter is all about. In chapter 2, Nehemiah told them what God had done, how God had called him, how he'd given him favor with the king. And then he says to them, this is what the Lord has done. Let's build this wall. And it says in 2.18, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, favorable to me, and also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. And they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. So in three, they're putting their hands to the good work, these 42 crews. Then Eliashib, this is 3.1, the high priest arose with his brothers, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. I did some research on the sheep gate, and they brought the sheep in through the sheep gate. It, uh, it's a fascinating study when you study the sheep gate. Now, why would they bring the sheep in? Because it's Jerusalem. What are they doing in Jerusalem? They're sacrificing. The sheep gate was important. So they consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. Uh, now, verse 2, you're going to see a phrase, next to him. Next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, so those two phrases, next to him and next to them, you're going to see those phrases all the way through this chapter. Next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zechur, the son of Emery, built. Now the sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Miramoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hekaz, made repairs. And next to him, Meshula, the son of Berechiah, the son of Mishelzebel made repairs. And next to him, you're getting the pattern, aren't you? Um, this is all the way through chapter 3. So let me make some quick observations. Let me make four quick observations about this chapter and why it's here. Number one, the Lord noted the workers. He noted the workers. When I was a kid... The church that we attended, I was probably nine or ten. They decided to build an education building right next to the sanctuary. I recall going down there three or four nights a week with my dad. After dinner, no, no, we'd go down before dinner because they had a dinner for all the men. And we'd go down and you'd have, I don't know, 25, 30, 35, 40 men. Uh, and they're working on this educational building. And the ladies would throw a dinner. And then I remember on Sundays, in the Sunday morning bulletin, it'd have a list of the men. It was just like Nehemiah 3. A list of the men in the bulletin. And then it would put how many hours each guy put in. And some guys could only go one night a week. Some guys, you know, had more time. And it was just... But it was an acknowledgement of the workers. They were noted. They were honored. Um, so here, the Lord noted the workers. 
he noted the crews, the heads of the crew, the, the superintendents, if you will. And um, God was interested in each of those workers who had different sets of skills. I remember when they put my name in the bulletin. I was nine years old. I couldn't hammer a nail, but I'd pick up trash. And uh, I thought that was pretty cool. I got my name in the bulletin. I still have that bulletin hanging in my office. No, that's, that's not true. I just made that up. But you know, you're nine years old, that's a big deal. And I was one of the guys, I was one of the men, so to speak. Because what those guys were is what I wanted to become. So I was glad my dad took me down there and I was a part of that, that was a big deal. So the Lord noted the workers in Nehemiah 3. Secondly, the Lord noted the slackers. <laughs> He noted the sluggards. If you look at verse 5 in Nehemiah 3. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Those were the guys who didn't work. Those were the guys who thought they were uh, entitled. Those were the guys who, for whatever reason, um, did not participate um, were not part of the work that God was doing, and the Lord took note of them. Number three, the Lord had them all work together. He had them all work together. 42 crews, and as you read through Nehemiah 3, you've got these various gates. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can go through the east, oh, the east gate is walled up. Uh, there's Damascus Gate. They have these gates. And the workers and the work crews were situated uh, in reference to a particular gate, and they were laid out. And this was a crew that was, uh, there was a plan here. It was well organized, and the Lord had them work together. The Lord always has his people work together. If you look at 1 Corinthians 12, uh, through 14, it talks about that God gives gifts to believers. God's the one who gives gifts. Not everyone has the same gifts. And some gifts are more public, other gifts are more private. But you've got to have all the gifts, and it's interesting because if a gift is missing, if a particular aspect is missing, uh, everybody feels it. In fact, in that passage, it, it will use the metaphor of the physical body. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. I remember in my first pastorate, um, that was always a challenge because our kids were little. And uh, I guess John was in a high chair. And I was making him something with peanut butter and jelly. Just We try to be real healthy at our house with breakfast. And Anyway, I don't know what Mary was doing, but I was doing the, I'll do peanut butter and jelly at 7 in the morning. And the jelly was, we were out. I looked up top. There was a another container, glass jar, I reached up. Um, 
mishandled it. It came down. I was barefoot, hit my pinky. Uh, I had to call someone to speak for me that morning because I couldn't stand up. I mean, I was in pain. It was, uh, it was embarrassing. Uh, but I, I was on injured reserve. Oh, what happened? Oh, I, you know, well, my little toe's really been giving me trouble. I felt like a wuss. But I mean, I could not. <laughs> I couldn't do it. Uh, so I didn't. Never thought about that toe. Rarely think about it. But, and, and you know, a lot of times, we, well, I'm not that important. I, my, what I do is not that public or it's this. It, let's say it's all important. And the Lord takes note. Francis Schaeffer did a book a long time ago. The title was No Little People, No Little Places. What God calls us to do, it's all important. Every aspect of the body is important. Fourthly, in this passage, the Lord noted exceptional work. If you look at chapter 3, verse 20 of Nehemiah, it says, After him, Baruch, the son of Zebai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the doorway of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. He zealously repaired. Now, we've got to put this in context. Does that mean he worked 100 hours a week? No. But I read an article this morning about an issue going on at Goldman Sachs headquarters in New York City because when you're hired on at Goldman Sachs, the whole goal of that is to become a partner. But in order to become a partner at Goldman Sachs, apparently there is this sort of law that as a young guy, you put in 100 hours a week. Now, it's not... I read the article twice. I'm not sure it's actually written down in ink, but it's an expectation. And you get these young guys, and they're smart, and they come out of good schools, and what's happening is they've only got so much fuel, even though they're young. And... Uh, what these guys were asking for was they were asking, they were begging that they could get an 80-hour week. Now, they're working hard. But see, the fact of the matter is, if you really stop and analyze this, you can't work hard 100 hours a week. You can't do it. You, you might be in a chair. You might be there. You, you might be moving your limbs but in terms of quality work, can you keep that up week after week after week, 100 hours? Can you keep up 80 hours a week? No. Because we have limitations. And they interviewed the CEO, and it was noted that on the weekends, he takes the company jet and goes to his home in the Bahamas. Comes back on Monday. Apparently, years ago, he paid his dues. But these guys, some of them have families, some of them have young kids. So it doesn't mean that he did, you know, 100 hours. But what he means is that what he did with the time that he had, he put his heart into it. Colossians 3, verse 23 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily. Not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. So it's a good thing to teach our sons 
how to work. It's a good thing to teach them how to get out of bed. I wanted my boys coming out of high school, I wanted them to be literate. I wanted them to be able to read. I wanted them to be able to cipher, as they would say 100 years ago. That's pretty important. But I'll tell you what's really important for boys. They need to learn to get out of bed on their own. And a lot of young guys can't get out of bed on their own. Let's put it this way. That's the wrong term. It's not that they can't. It's that they won't. Uh, that used to be, it just went without saying. It's just what the way life was. Not so much anymore. But you can't be exceptional in your work if you can't get out of the bed. The thing about adolescent boys is they never want to go to bed. And once they're in bed, they never want to get out of bed. So there's got to be some impetus, and there's got to be some teaching and some instruction, and there's got to be some consequences. Just thought I'd throw that in, no charge for that. But um, just part of life. What these, uh, Richard Sume, in summing up this chapter, he, he came up with four C's, and this is pretty good. This is how they built the wall. There was number one, cooperation. Nearly everyone worked, except for the ones mentioned in verse five. There was cooperation. There was coordination. They all worked together. They had their assigned spots in relationship to a particular gate. There was concentration. They worked specifically. And there was consummation. They executed their work. And, and that's the whole message of Nehemiah 3. It was a cooperative, concentrated, focused task that got done in 52 days. It had been, um, it had been delayed for at least 90 years, actually more than that. Now, I just wanted to helicopter that and get into chapter 4 because this is really the brunt of what happens when you decide you're going to follow the Lord, you're going to rebuild the walls in your own life as you turn to him and ask him to begin rebuilding you, and you're going to be teachable, and you're going to get into the word, and you're going to begin this process of becoming a follower of Christ. Um, we're all needy men. We all have different issues. Um, you can't live the Christian life by yourself. There are um, two things you can't do by yourself. Number one, you can't get married by yourself. At least not yet. I'm sure there's some federal judge somewhere that's working on that. But for right now, you can't get married by yourself. Secondly, you can't live the Christian life by yourself. Uh, Jesus did not send them out to, uh, one by one. He sent them out what? Two by two. The two are stronger than one. Uh, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. We are, um, we're men in process, we're men who are growing, but we are in a body. Men do best when they're not isolated. Men do best when they walk through life with another man or two. The Bible says, he who walks with wise men will be wise. 
I, I had a young man recently ask me after the study, he was asking me about, he wants to know God's will for his life and what are some principles. And just off the top of my head, I said, well, it's good you're asking because that means you're teachable. You, you can't grow if you're not teachable. If you think you know everything, you're stuck. But you're asking good questions here. So that means you're teachable. Um, and then I mentioned to him, you want to walk with wise men. You want to walk with men who know the Lord. You want to walk with, you want to get to know older men who know the Lord because they've got experience and they've been through chapters of life that you haven't even started on yet. So we, we don't walk by ourselves. The enemy loves to isolate men and get them by themselves. In chapter three, they're rebuilding the walls. But in chapter four, what's going on? Well, they're experiencing tremendous resistance from the enemy and his attacks and the contrary voices. Um, th this is why you don't want to walk, try to walk the Christian life by yourself. In Galatians 6, 2, there's, there's a great verse that, that pertains exactly to what we're talking about here. And what it says is, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. The context is in 6.1, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, and we all sin as believers and we all fall short, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Uh, in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So you have a brother that falls off the wayside, gets caught in some sin, gets trapped in some sin. What do we do? Well, you, you know the guy, you're involved in his life. Those of you who are spiritual or walking with the Lord, what do you do? You come alongside, you help the guy out. You minister to him. And as you minister to him, you're looking to yourself because you know that could be you. And so you deal with him in a gentle way, in a meek way. In a, in a way of um, wanting what's best for him. You need to be going through the challenges of life with someone because um, the Christian life was not designed to be lived by itself. So you've got all these guys rebuilding the wall in this passage, and then what you've got is that as they're re rebuilding the wall and doing the work, suddenly they get all these attacks. Now, actually, the attacks started coming back in um, chapter 2, verse 10. We read, when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, who were these guys? Uh, some kind of government officials, some kind of bureaucrats. They had some power. Maybe they were in charge of the health department. Maybe they were in charge of, I mean, who knows? But they had power and they loved power. They're little bureaucratic tyrants. When they heard about it, about what? That Nehemiah was coming with a um, mandate from the king to rebuild the walls, they were not pleased about it. It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel because they weren't for the welfare of the sons of Israel and they weren't for the God of Israel. They were enemies 
of the people of Israel. So right off the bat, they're against what Nehemiah is going to do. But then you get into chapter 4, and we run into these guys again. And here comes the resistance, and here comes the enemy voices. Now it came about that when Sanballat, this is 4.1, heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Notice the sarcasm, notice the ridicule. Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusky rubble, even the burned ones? Well, yeah, that's what they're going to do with God's help, actually. Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, uh, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. So it's just ridicule, it's uh, verbal uh, persecution, it's sarcasm. Um, you notice this is increasing. We should not be surprised at this, and we should not be surprised that it's increasing around us, and we, not, we should not be surprised as it continues to increase. Um, We've got some interesting times coming our way here. We're going to find out if religious freedom is going to be kept with this uh, House Bill 5, or if religious freedom is going to be something where you kneel before the LGBTQT um, mandates, and they determine whether or not what you believe is legitimate. You can look that up for yourself. Al, Al Mohler has a great article on it. Dr. Dobson has another. This is coming potentially, it could come soon. Um, once again, I'm just here to encourage you. But if it comes, it comes. What do we do? We keep doing the work. We keep building the walls. So John Bloom has written an article, you don't need to understand now. You don't need to understand now. He begins by saying, Jesus spoke many profound and important words to his disciples the night before his crucifixion. But there's one statement we might easily pass over because of the context in which he made it. Yet, it is loaded with personal meaning for each of us who follow him. In John 13, 7, Jesus said, What I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Peter didn't get what was going to happen. Uh, he did not want the Lord to be crucified. Uh, he didn't get it. He didn't understand it. And what's Jesus say? What I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. There's a lot of things that God is doing right now that we don't understand. It doesn't add up to us. It concerns us, and it alarms us. And uh, it, has, it has some ramifications that we have never had to face before. Bloom goes on and says, in that one sentence, Jesus captures a profound reality that is our frequent, and to some extent, continual experience as Christians. 
not understanding what God is doing or not doing and why. It is crucial that we grasp the wider implications of what Jesus said here, for if we do, it will help help each of us immensely during the times we wonder why our good shepherd is leading us down such confusing and painful paths. He goes on and he says this, redemptive history recounts story after story of saints finding themselves in this perplexing position, being forced to trust God to make sense of it later. In other words, what's going on right now? I, can't, I don't understand. I don't get this. Uh, Abraham, having waited so long for his son Isaac, only to be instructed by God to offer the boy as a sacrifice. That's Genesis 22. He didn't understand it, but later he would. Uh, Joseph, wondering what God was doing as his young adulthood wasted away in an Egyptian prison. And he was in prison not because he did what was wrong, because he did what was right. Uh, he cites Nehemiah. N Nehemiah having to deal with so many seemingly unnecessary adversities, obstacles, and inefficiencies that slowed down the work in rebuilding Jerusalem's walls. It's Nehemiah 4. It's where we're planted here tonight for a while. He then goes on and says this, and this is excellent as he sums it up. We don't need to understand God's, God's purposes now. What we need to do is trust God's purposes now. For it is through our trust, not our own understanding, that God will direct us along our confusing paths. And we can trust him that later, when the time is right, in the near or distant future, he will give us all the understanding that we need. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. The heart is mind. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not to your own understanding. I don't get this. This makes no sense to me. Yeah, it does. of course it doesn't. Because God does not always reveal what he's doing. Isaiah 55, 8, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. When God doesn't do things the way we think they should be done, we get confused. Especially when it brings pain. So we don't need to understand God's purposes now. What we need to do is to trust God's purposes now. We won't understand perhaps now... But as Jesus said, afterward, you will understand. There have been things that have occurred in your life that God brought into your life in the past, and when he brought those into your life, you did not get it. And it might have raised serious questions to you about the goodness of God. And years have gone by, and perhaps enough time has gone by, and now you understand. And now you see the benefit of what you went through. Perhaps other things we will not see and understand until we're in heaven. But his purposes are right. Our job is to trust him even when we don't understand. What's happening here is that it goes from mockery and ridicule, uh, the voices of mockery and ridicule, and Nehemiah cries out to the Lord in verse 4 of 4. He says, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Uh, do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you for they have demoralized the builders. That's a pretty strong prayer. You find prayers like that sometimes in the Psalms. 
They're called imprecatory psalms. It's because God has been attacked. God's character has been attacked. God's purposes have been attacked. Doesn't mean those people don't need the Lord. But where they are right now, they are utterly against the plan of God and God's covenant purpose for his people. But they kept doing what they were supposed to be doing. Look at verse 6. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So suddenly, they're halfway there. That's a big deal, because for 90 years, basically nothing has happened. So they got it half done. Um, that's a big accomplishment. But a lot of times, half, half done doesn't seem like halfway. Uh, some, I was talking to someone just in the last few weeks, and they ran marathons, and the guy told me, the first marathon I ever ran, I realized at the 20-mile mark, um, I was almost halfway. And it took me a while to process that. So a, a marathon is 26 miles and change. He said, my first marathon, I realized at the 20-mile mark, I was almost halfway. What he meant by that, the last six miles are grueling. I mean, you would think at the 13-mile mark is halfway. It's great to go 13 miles. But at 20 miles, you think you're dead. Um, but it was an accomplishment. It was an achievement. But they had to keep pushing on. Now, here's where the enemy uses his different devices and his different tools. When you're attempting to rebuild a wall in your own life, when you're attempting to rebuild a wall and minister to someone else, I think his primary weapon that he uses is discouragement. If you look at verses 7 of, verse of chapter 4, now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance. Now you got violence. Now you got a military action being threatened. And the people, the guys, the guys working, they're, they're, they're discouraged. When you get threats on your life or the life of your family, that's discouraging. There's no way of getting around it. Now look at how Nehemiah responds in verse 9. But we prayed to our God. And because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. This guy's very practical. This guy's got his head screwed on right. He's not strange. He takes logical and practical steps. But we prayed to our God, and don't ever dismiss prayer. And because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. So they're going to threaten us? All right, we're going to set up a guard day and night. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. Yet there is much rubbish and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. That's the criticism. Our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them and put a stop to the work. So here's the conspiracy. You don't know when we're going to show up, but we're coming. That, that's unsettling. It's hard to sleep at night when that's going on. It's hard to get rest so that you continue the work. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But watch what... Watch what Nehemiah does. Verse 12. 
Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. So it just keeps coming, the threats. Then I, here's what Nehemiah says, then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. In other words, we're getting all these threats, we're getting all these threatening voices, all right, we're gonna take some action, and we're just not gonna stand by. Uh, we're, we're gonna, as Oliver Cromwell said, we're gonna trust God and keep our powder dry. That's not a bad principle. Verse 14. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Watch this. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who was great and awesome. Who gave us this task? Who enabled me to come here? Who gave me favor with the king? Who is involved in this? Who has called us? Who is leading this? Don't forget the Lord. That's leadership. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Christians get weird sometimes. I, I had a guy ask me one time, what would you do if someone broke into your house and was threatening your wife? And would, what would you do? I, I said I would, I'd go after him. You don't have a problem with that? Well, no, I don't have a problem with that. Well, how can you justify that biblically? Well, here's a verse. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus, I might have to give myself up for my wife, but I'm not going to stand there and let some guy attack her. You think that's godly? You think that's spiritual? That's weird. I'm sorry, but that's weird. You know that verse where Paul told Timothy to fight the good passivity? Do <laughs> you remember that verse? I don't remember that verse. He told Timothy to fight the good what? Fight. Sometimes you got to fight. Do you go looking for fights? No. But if someone attacks someone you love, what do you do if you're a man? You step in and you handle it. You might get your tail kicked, but you're not going to be passive. You're going to do whatever you can do. That's what men do. But we've gotten so weird and we've gotten so strange. Well, I don't think that's real spiritual. Well, I pity your wife and I pity your daughter. They need to be protected. They need to be loved. They need to be cared for. I feel better. There's just too much weirdness among Christians. You don't go looking for trouble. It's like with your son. I, I, I was writing something the other day that's going in the point man revision about teaching your boys. And one of the things, I'm just giving some bullet points. And I said, teach them to fight. And then I said, yeah, I said that. Teach them to fight. You're not going to teach them to be bullies. You're going to teach them to defend themselves and defend the weak and the handicapped and the disadvantage. That's what I taught my boys. That's what men do. So what he does, he comes up with this plan. Look at verse 16, uh, 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, their threats, and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. They went back to work. But look at this plan that he implemented. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held the spears, the shields, and the bows, and the breastplates. 
And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other hand holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. You hear the trumpet? Go. Help him out. And the Lord will already be there, and he's going to fight for you. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time I said to the people, let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem, so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes, each took his weapon even to the water. They were prepared. This is just practical stuff. Uh, they, they had to respond to the voices of criticism, the voices of violence. They had to respond. Um, I want to talk about voices as we close. I've known Pat Morley for a long time, and he has done some great writing and great ministry. He's got a book coming out Father's Day this year, and he sent me an advance copy but you won't be able to get it till Father's Day, and you can go to Man in the Mirror, the name of the ministry. Uh, you can find it on Amazon, but around Father's Day. But the book is called The Four Voices, Taking Control of the Conversation in Your Head. I think this is the best stuff Pat Morley's ever written. It's, it's, it's so biblical. It's so practical. And I want to take a few minutes just to give you from the introduction... Um, I'm just going to dive in. Because you see, there are voices in our lives. Even as you're trying to rebuild your life, even as you're trying to walk with the Lord, even as you're trying to make decisions throughout the day, even as you're trying to deal with anger and frustration and setbacks. So Pat says, that conversation in your head is a lot more than self-talk. Now, he's not going to do a lot of psychology here. He's going to do a lot of Bible. He says, the four voices in your head are the world, the flesh, the devil, and the Holy Spirit. That's what you call biblical. Your job is to figure out which voice is speaking and take control of the conversation. Unless you understand the four voices and how they work, you will continue to have inexplicable mood swings. You will continue to act out on your worst impulses and not know why. You will continue to be pleasant at work or school, but irritable around your family. I've heard some of you guys struggle with that. I never have. And that's worth laughing at, is it not? Until you know how to adjust what's going on in your head, you will experience ongoing frustration because you can't get control of your emotions. You will find yourself going to bed angry, Waking in the middle of the night in a panic, getting up every morning feeling exhausted, and then blindly repeating the cycle all over again. Not mastering the voices in your head will eat away at your self-worth, poison your relationships, stunt your growth as a person, and limit how far you go in life. So he talks about the world, just very quickly. The first voice is the world. Scripture tells us our world does not work in the way it did when God created it. You could say it's broken. In Christian terminology, it's fallen. Colossians 2.8 cautions. 
See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. What does the voice of the world sound like, Morley asked. When I first started in business, I was told, you have potential, but you don't have enough experience. Pat says, when I was young, the voice of the world said to me, you're too young to make a difference. But I've heard older men say that they've been told in so many worlds, you're not useful anymore. You're expendable. And you've been replaced. We don't need you. That's the voice of the world saying, you're too old. That's real life stuff right there. Because we live in a world of sin, essentially the voice of the fallen world wants you to think, it doesn't matter if I'm young or old. I really can't make a difference. But see, God has designed you to make a difference. With all your failures, with all your sin, with all of your setbacks. Then he mentions the flesh. That's the second voice. Uh, the flesh is the sin nature. And because of time... I'm just going to refer to it. We all fight it, and we'll fight it until we go to be with the Lord. But because that clock is moving, I'm going to move. The third voice is the voice of the devil. He says, the third voice in your head, the author of confusion and the tempter of your soul, is the devil. Is the devil real? Jesus certainly thought so. In John 8, 44, Jesus said to some disbelieving people, you belong to your father, the devil and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then Pat says this. Here's the bottom line. The devil wants to destroy what God wants to build. That's the message of Nehemiah. It's the message of Nehemiah 3 and 4. The devil wants to destroy what God wants to build. What God's doing in your life. What God is building in your life. What does the voice of the devil sound like? The malware of choice for the devil is distrust, doubt, and despair. Once the devil hacks your brain and loads this malware, malware onto your hard drive... It's a virus that spreads very quickly and turns into false guilt, false shame, and self-pity. So that's how the voice of the devil works. He wants you to carry around the burden of what has already been forgiven. It really irks the devil when you accept the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to take away the burden of all that shame and guilt, which brings us to the fourth voice, which is the voice of the Holy Spirit. C.H. Spurgeon said, uh, the Bible is the library of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks God's words to us. Uh, the Holy Spirit brings calm to chaos, comfort to sorrow, peace to strife, clarity to confusion, and power to weakness. Um, the world wants you to think it doesn't matter if I'm young or old. 
I can't really make a difference. But when you look at Scripture, you see young men that had setbacks, and then God used them. So you can be used if you're a young man. But then on the other hand, you see people in the last third of their lives that undoubtedly it was too late for them to be used, but both Sarah, Moses, Ad Joshua, Paul, they all did their best work in the last third of their lives. They were late bloomers. Some are early bloomers, some are late bloomers. But the Spirit wants you to hear the exact opposite of what the world wants you to hear. The Spirit wants you to know it doesn't matter how old you are, you can always make a difference. You can always be rebuilding some walls. I like this. The voice of the Spirit will empower you to keep the world on a leash, the flesh on house arrest, and the devil on a terrorist watch list. This is why we uh, open our Bibles. This is why we listen to our pastors teach the Word of God. This is why we don't walk by ourselves as we go through life. But a friend will say a right word at a right time. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Because we all get discouraged and we're all being lied to. And if you're alive, you're alive because God still has a work for you to do. The guys who finished the work, they couldn't be here tonight. You know why? They're not on this earth. So what happens when you finish your work? You're out of here. You finish your work, you're gone. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works any man should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. And when you finish the work, you're out. You're here, so there's still work to be done. So what does that mean? God wants to use you, but it means you're going to get opposition. So we put our head down. <laughs> We ask for the Lord's help. We stay in the word. We stay close to brothers. And we take it a day at a time. In spite of what's going on around us. He's building his church. Father, we thank you for this truth. Encourage us with these words. Uh, you are not done with us. We're not too young, we're not too old, we belong to you. And we thank you that you have a purpose for each man in this room. Give us clarity. As we go home tonight, give us not just sleep, but give us rest. Help us to rest. For you give to your beloved, even in their sleep. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.